Good morning. Good? Good. <clears throat> well, I'm firmly convinced that there's some scheming with Pastor Corey and Pastor Ben that somehow they knew July was going to be like the hottest month ever. And so they said, we'll let Cameron preach that month. Because lately, I've been judging how hot a day is by how many shirts I sweat through. I think we're at two today. We're in a number. Uh, well, uh, we're, we're still in, in Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 20. As you're getting to chapter 20, I'm going to set these, these uh, jars for the quarters for the laundry I Am Loved event, events on the side of the stage here so that when we come up for communion later, you have an opportunity to bring any quarters or dollars up so we can make sure that a whole city has the opportunity to, do, to get their laundry done if they need it. Clean city, amen. I don't want you to miss out on that opportunity. I don't want you to miss out on any of those opportunities. Like, they're not just they're not just good things to do for the people in the city, right? Because I mean, you realize that when we use the term "going on mission," when we when we when we step out to be on mission to a city that. It's not even just about, about them. I mean, it is. All right? It's about, it's about us incarnating the love and life of Jesus Christ to a city, to a people. But it's also about you. Right? Because every time, uh, every time you do something in the name of and in the spirit of the Savior who has called you, right? You... Walk with him, and it's not just the people who receive that are changed, but it's the people who simply walk with Jesus that are changed, right? How do I experience a transformed life? You experience a transformed life by transformed living, right? And walking with Jesus, doing things like this. It's the way that we walk transformed. Oh, all right. Luke chapter 20. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right. We're going to start at verse 9. We're going to read a little parable here. <clears throat> now, uh, remember that parables are stories that are told that are not, like, that are not historically... Um, they're not rooted in history. Meaning, so when Jesus tells this story, right, he, he does actually tell a story. Jesus actually does tell a story, but the, the story itself is kind of, uh, if you can use the term, made up in order to 
communicate a spiritual point or to, to communicate some values, to communicate um, something. And what, the something is what we're going to try and get at this morning. We do this all the time. We tell stories in order to, to teach lessons to our children or we tell, um, we tell stories to illustrate certain points. And so this shouldn't come as a surprise. In Scripture, they're called parables. So we have a, a story about, the, it's called the parable of the tenants that Jesus, that Jesus gives, and he says this. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and then went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I guess I'll send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Well, he will come, and he will kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to someone else. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. See, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Okay. So, the first question that we can ask about this parable, about this section of Scripture is, okay, Jesus is obviously telling a story, and Jesus doesn't do anything without a purpose, and so there's a purpose about the timing of the story, uh, who the story is addressed to, and what the story is about. Now Luke gives us a lot of detail about who the parable is for. Like, what is the what is the purpose that, that Jesus tells the story or tells the parable first off? Well, that's our last verse, verse 19 here. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against who? Against them. Right? So... It was not a secret who 
the parable or whom the parable sought to address. Jesus was, Jesus was shooting an arrow directly at the, uh, who Luke calls the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now, that shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to us here because the first part of chapter 20, the part that we didn't read this morning, the first eight verses, Jesus has a run-in with the chief priests and the teachers of the law where he's teaching in the temple, he's preaching the gospel, it says, he's getting the people all, like, he's getting them all saved, right? And it says that... Uh, one day he was teaching the people in the temple courts, preaching the gospels, the gospel, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gives you this authority? Okay, so here we have Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God himself, right? Teaching the people in the temple preaching the gospel to them, and the religious leaders of the Jewish nation come into the temple, witness what Jesus is doing, and basically say to him, what in the world, where, where do you get off? Who, who gave you the authority to be saying these things? to be doing these things. You imagine what some of those things were. What was it that was so offensive uh, that Jesus was talking about that would have made the chief priests and the teachers of the law so angry over it? Well, you only need to look back in the last 19 chapters of Luke that we've been studying for months now to, to know that that one of, the, uh, one of the things that Jesus was doing was say, saying very rude, uh, very rude and selfish things to people like, hey, your sins are forgiven. Right? Very offensive. Very mean things. I mean, Jesus, it wasn't like Jesus was, was preaching a message of hate and shame and, and guilt and disgrace. He was laying his hands on people and healing them from disease. He was receiving people who had been ostracized from community, who had been pushed to the margins of society and of life. He had been, he had been saying to people who, had, who, who knew only shame, who knew only disgrace, bless you Vinny, who knew only shame and only disgrace and only guilt, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus was standing, standing in a place of, of forgiveness and grace and, uh, and, and compassion, and he was exercising authority and healing and he was, he was exercising authority in, in teaching. And the elders and the teachers of the law obviously um, 
questioned that authority. And so Jesus took, took them to task in a kind of roundabout way by preaching or telling this parable of the tenants. Now, why would Jesus, uh, why would Jesus tell this parable or aim this parable at the chief priests, at the, at the elders or the teachers of the law of the Jewish nation? Well, I mean, if you read the parable, you, you get an idea. It, it's, it's fairly self-explanatory, right? This guy, this rich landowner, he planted a garden or planted a vineyard. And then he said to these farmers, um, I'm going to go away for a while. I want you to, to tend this vineyard. Take care of it. Let it produce fruit. You know, and like any, any farmer in charge, of a, in charge of a vineyard, that means you, like, you take care of the, the vines. You prepare the soil. You protect it from animals or other people who would seek to in, invade it and, and steal away the fruit or destroy the crop or, or, or injure, right, anyone working there. And then when the owner was ready to receive some of the fruit from the vineyard, he sent his, some of his own personal servants. Okay, go to that vineyard that I planted and, um, and, and tell them that we want some of the fruit from it. We want, some of the, we want some of the overflow from what the vineyard has produced. And you would, you would think that the farmers who had been tending it would, would recognize that that what has been produced in the vineyard, although it is from the work of their hands, that, that, they, that they hold no possession over it. It's no claim of ownership that they have over what has been produced. You would think that that would be like the natural response. But instead, when the servants of the master came to get the fruit, the ones who had been tasked with taking care of the vineyard... What's it say? They beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he was not treated in the vineyard and the servant was obviously not treated in the way that the master had thought that it probably should and would go to begin with. Now, if we're going to talk about, okay, how then does the, the parable of the tenants and the whole premise of the parable, why would Jesus use that type of imagery or that type of story to communicate to the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish nation? What was it that he was trying to communicate? Well, from the very beginning of there being a people called the people of God. We're in Luke, right? Way back to the beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, God did something. For the first time, He took a man 
You all know this story? Is this new? Or is this... Y'all, you're with me, right? Well, we're going we're gonna to go over it again. This is, this is good stuff here, okay? Genesis chapter 12. So, Genesis 1 through 11, there were no people called the Israelites, right? There was, there was no people of God. There was no one, no one set apart to do the work of God. And so, in Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, we see the, the first time that God said, okay, you, come over here. I've got a job for you. I've got a task for you. And it's not a small one. It's actually kind of big. And he says to Abram, he says, I will make you into a great nation. Abram, from you will come a whole nation of people. Your, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. That's a like, can you imagine like the weight of that coming down on Abram? Like, and of course we know that later in life Abram is renamed Abraham, right? And he becomes father, the patriarch of the Jewish people, the Israelite nation, the whole, the whole, the whole people of Israel throughout the whole course of time started here in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham, the call of Abram. And what was the call? I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. Well, that sounds like a good deal. Right? I will make your name great. Sounds like an increasingly good deal. God is, God is, God is doing, a, he's, he's pitching this whole calling thing pretty good to Abram, right? It's all going to be good. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be good. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going I'm to I'm bless you. I'm going I'm to make your name great. But then... But then, like, the language switches from you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you to, and you will be, what? A blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will what? Will be blessed through you. Okay, so, not to state the obvious, right? But the descendants of Abram, from the very beginning, were meant to be 
the conduit of God's blessing to the world. The way in which God uh, interacted with and flowed in and blessed and took care of and incarnated himself was to be through this nation of people, this called people, called Israelites, called Jews. It was not like God said, hey, Abram, um, I am going to make you into a great nation because um, you are more handsome than everyone else. You have more wealth than everyone else. You're more prominent than everyone else. In fact, what does God do to Abram before he calls him? He says, you're going to leave behind every worldly possession that you have. Leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to a land that I'm not even going to show you yet. Just start moving in that direction, right? So it wasn't a call to Abram because he was something special. It was a call to Abram because for whatever reason, God recognized that Abram had the stuff to make it happen. And the calling was a calling not of privilege. God didn't call Abram because he wanted to bless him more than anyone else. God called Abram to a calling of responsibility, right? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You are the, you are the tip of the spear, Abram. You are, you are the, the biggest part of the funnel. It is through you. Now, fast forward, generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation. Let me, let me ask you this question. Um, does God break his promises? No, right? God is not a promise breaker, right? He is not like you and I. Right? When God says something, he means it, and he means it forever. Right? And so when God says to Abram, I will make your name great, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Right? God's intention is that throughout the course of history, that the people in the line of descendants from Abram all the way up until Jesus would be... Uh, would be receptive to the Holy Spirit of God so that they could receive from God that which God desired to give to the world, to the people. And so now we get to this point in history where Jesus shows up on scene and he's like, uh, not what I had in mind. And so what's he start doing? He starts doing what God had in mind, right? Healing people of their sickness. Proclaiming freedom from sin. Receiving people in grace and compassion. Coming against things like legalism and shame and guilt. And so he, he encounters these religious leaders, right? The religious leaders 
The ones who are like in the line of Abraham supposed to be leading the charge of being a blessing to the world in, for the Israelite nation. And he's like, dudes, no bueno. Not good. It's not happening. And Jesus is like, it's almost like my father planted this vineyard and asked you to take care of it. And sent you a bunch of these people, like the prophets, right? Proclaiming to you, hey, um, remember what God asked you to do, okay? Remember what God asked you to do, okay? The prophets, right? Hey, hey, Israel, hey, people in the line of Abraham, remember what God asked you to do. Uh, remember what God asked you to do. And, and what, did, what did they do to the prophets? You know, it's a really, um, it's kind of like in church culture, it's kind of like a popular thing to say, um, God is calling me to be a prophet, or I am a prophet of God. Well, uh, I got news for all you prophets out there. Um, uh, all the prophets got killed. Right? They were all murdered. Because prophets say things to people that they don't like as the mouthpiece of God and every prophet in the course of history that came to the Israelite nation, they killed, they murdered, they got rid of, they, they like, get out of here, don't want anything to do with you. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a term or title of endearment. There's, there's a reason that Jeremiah was like, ah, no, thank you, do not want to be a prophet. Really like the whole breathing thing. So, so Jesus, you know, continues in the parable, like, hey, remember the first prophet that God sent? Well, you killed him, okay, so God sent another prophet. And, well, you killed him, and, well, God sent another prophet. Well, uh, John the Baptist, what happened? Killed him. So God's like, oh my gosh, these are the densest people I've ever met in my entire life. I will send them my son. Perhaps... Perhaps they will listen to my son. Well, we read the story. Do they listen to the son? How do they treat the son? Exactly like the prophets before them. And so we have this group of men. They were men. The chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law of the Jewish nation who had been tasked with um, carrying out this uh, lineage of faith started in Abram. And uh, now Jesus is saying uh, to them, you guys, uh, you failed miserably. And, and not only, not only uh, 
have you failed, but every time, every time God tried to yank you back to center, you killed the messenger. And it's the so so the parable is it's both descriptive of what has happened in the life of the people of God. You killed the prophet, you killed the prophet, you killed the prophet, you didn't do what you were told, you didn't do what you were supposed to, like God tried to get you back on track, God tried to get you back on track, and you didn't listen. Not only was it descriptive, but it was also predictive, right? Because who is telling the parable? The son who has not yet been what? Not yet been killed. So, although the parable here, listen, although the parable was, when we read the parable of the tenants, okay, um, this is one thing that, like, I think it's important for us to understand Scripture so that we can, so that we can take it and, and like, I know, I know Captain Obvious, right? So that we can take it and apply it to our lives. It's important to understand Scripture so we can take it and apply it to our lives. But listen, when you read the parable of the tenants, understand that it happened in a particular time, in a particular place, and that Jesus was addressing a particular people, right? So the parable of the tenants was for, for who? Is for who? It continues to be for the Jewish leaders, right? The Israelite people, right? But that doesn't mean... That, that you and I are being like, <laughs> because Jesus doesn't just address the, the, like the, the personal people of the Jewish leaders. Jesus addresses the deeper issue of uh, an obstinacy and a hardness of heart. When God asks us to do something, when God points us in a direction, when God gives us clear directive, and throughout the course of the, the season of, of wa trying to walk in faithfulness, we, we come up with little compromises and, 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 and rabbit trails and, and, and places and directions to go in, instead of where God has originally pointed us. And we think, well, this is just a, a small little diversion. Well, if you take ten small little diversions, you end up way off track. And if you want to know in an even deeper way what this means for us, you and I, where we, like, where it really, like, the hammer hits the nail on the head, you turn forward with me to Acts. If you're at Luke, okay, turn to the right until you hit Acts and go to chapter 7. So what has happened here now is that um, 
Jesus' prediction of the son being killed by the tenants of the vineyard has come true. And this guy, Stephen, this follower of Jesus, this like tremendously bold, courageous proclaimer of the gospel, stands before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the large ruling council of the Jewish nation, and he says some things to them that is pretty amazing and pretty courageous and pretty brave and ends up, what? Getting him killed. But he says, starting in verse uh, 51... Chapter 7, verse 51. So, so Stephen is like standing up in front of the Sanhedrin and he is like laying down the gospel. I mean, like he is preaching it for all of its worth. And he says, he says this to the most powerful people in the nation. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears... You are just like your fathers. Listen, right here. This is it. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have what? Not obeyed it. And of course, if you read on, read on in Acts chapter 7, after Stephen said that, they were like, oh, got to get rid of him. So they did. And they picked up something like this. And it wasn't pretty. So listen, I, you know what's really easy to do when you read the Bible? When you, when you read and encounter God's Word, it is, um, when there's a hardness of heart, when there's some obstinacy to the working of the Holy Spirit in me, I read the Word of God, and I'm like, oh yeah, I know someone who should read this. I know I really know someone who should read the parable of the tenants. I should I should text this verse to them. Uh, read this uh, about judgment and uh, responsibility and thought of you. Uh, blessings. <laughs> right? Because when our hearts become hard, when we become like the Jewish leaders who always resist the Holy Spirit, right? The Word of God cannot penetrate the hardness of our hearts and we no longer see ourselves and our complicity in the inaction of the kingdom and we see it only in others' lives.
so when, when I read this, first off, um, I was like, okay, try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Like, okay, I am sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Lord, speak. Let me hear. Reveal your word. Um, Lord, make me, make me a man worthy of being able to speak your word. And then you read and you read and you read and you just can't get away. I couldn't get away from this one this one, um, this one thing within the parable, it's not stated flat out. But it's like you try to put yourself in the, in the world of the parable and it begins to reveal things about God that you've never seen before. And I had never seen this before. This is new to me this week, right? Um... Because Jesus almost always tells parables uh, not necessarily to reveal the heart of man, but to reveal the heart of God. No one needs to be told that human beings have the tendency to be hard-hearted. Right? That's just a common human condition. So Jesus tells parables to help reveal who God is. Not who, not who we are. He wants us to know who He is. So I put myself in this parable, and I was like, well, what would I, would, what would I do in this situation? And let me tell you what. If I was the landowner, and I sent sir, a servant to take what was rightfully mine, and those who I had hired to take care of it, beat him and send him away, there wouldn't be a strike two. And there wouldn't be a strike three. And there certainly wouldn't be a strike four. Right? Like, consequence and punishment and judgment, if it were left up to me, would happen swiftly and decisively. God is so gracious with our hard-heartedness. God is so gracious even when we say no. God is, so, God is so gracious that even after he sends one servant and we beat him up and kick him out of our house, he sends another. And we beat him up and we kick him out of our house. And then he sends another. And we beat him up and we kick him out of our house. And then he comes to us himself and allows himself to be unjustly treated. He sends his son. God has every right in that moment to come down hard upon the people. But instead, an amazing display of compassion and patience and forbearance and grace, he bears with 
those who would constantly reject him. I am on this I am on the stage of conduit because God bore with my obstinacy and my hard-heartedness and my fear and my um, resisting the Holy Spirit and and any time within that 10-year period God most certainly could have taken away right the call to plant a church on the north side of the city of Jamestown and could have removed that from my life and could have removed the anointing and the mantle of ministry from me at any moment, right? It all could have been over, but, but consistently over a long period of time, the Spirit of God bore witness in my life and the hard hardness that said, no, God, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. I'm not giving this up. I can't. I won't. I'm not. Get out of my house. I'm going to beat you up if you come back again, right? Time and time and time again, right? Grace. Mercy. Perseverance. But here's like, we have, we got to balance the scales, right? Because God, God shows tremendous grace, but he's not a fool. And what Jesus, the, the imagery switches here. Because in verse 17, when the parable part is over, when the rulers realized that the parable was about them, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, what is the meaning of, which, of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And so Jesus has just painted this picture of a, you had a responsibility, you had something that God called you to, he was gracious and gracious and gracious and gracious and, and, and unendingly compassionate with you, despite your hard-heartedness, despite your obstinacy, but now, right, the period of graciousness has come to a close. Because the stone that the builders of the nation rejected has become the cornerstone of the kingdom. So those in the nation rejected, 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 finally rejected the very son And it was the Son who has become the cornerstone. Now I asked Pastor Ben to bring this in here this morning, and he said he brought the small one. Um, and uh, I'm not a mason, and uh, I only pretend to be a builder most of the times, but, uh, but I, know a, I know a few things. And, and what I know is that uh, the cornerstone 
or the capstone of a building is the most important part. And it requires the most attention. And it requires the most detail. Because everything that is built in that building is built off of this. Meaning that if you get this thing wrong, nothing can be right. So like when we take, as a carpenter, we take a square or we take a level to make sure something is square or plumb or level. Everything that we build must be built off something that is right. Because if it's not, the, the stone goes from being something that will support uh, the whole building and that the whole building will be raised up upon and it goes from being, being something constructive to something that someone trips over and knocks their head off, right? And causes damage. Now, um, Corey and Ben are in here. If you guys could come up, we can do communion together.